Blog Talk Radio. It is really a privilege to be doing uh, One Dimitri Radio, and not just because I get to talk with you, my dear listeners, but also because I get to listen to some incredible guests. And uh, over the years, I'm telling you, we've gotten some terrific ones. And one of the most popular, one of the most interesting, uh, was not available today. So, But I do have a good person. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, one of the most popular is um, Melissa Francis. Now, you might, the older uh, listeners might remember her as one of the child stars of Little House on the Prairie. She came along in the last few seasons of the show when they needed to inject some new blood there. And as a child actress, she was uh, ideal for the part. And we're going to talk all about that and her interactions with Michael Landon and, and with all the other stars there, Little House on the Prairie. But uh, she's also had a terrific career when she, after she grew up, she went to college, you know, went to Harvard, got a degree in economics. You can tell she's really, really smart. And she's really, really good looking because you can see her on the Fox News channel and Fox Business. She is one of the uh, hot, bright blondes, and uh, she is a uh, delight. And she's written a new book, Lessons from the Prairie. It's a follow-up, uh, kind of, sort of, well, not only a follow-up, but it's like her second book. The first one was um, Diary of a Stage Mother's uh, Daughter. Some people might think that her mother was batshit crazy. I don't know that's the case because I never met her mother, but it's a very, very compelling story. So if you'd like to buy two books, uh, not only Lessons from the Prairie, but also the other one that she wrote, Diary of a Stage Mother's uh, Daughter. It's really actually kind of heartbreaking, some parts of it. And, of course, uh, she started a little house on the prairie. And now the pinnacle of her career, she's back on One Dimitri Radio. Uh, so, Melissa Francis, welcome back. How are you doing today? I can't possibly live up to that introduction. I loved that. I yeah. don't know what you need me for now. No, I'm just kidding. I can listen to you all day. I swear to God, I can listen to you all day. All right, now, I actually read your book. I think it's a good idea for an interviewer to actually read the books or, or see the films or whatever the people that, that he is interviewing. And so one of the things that really interested me that we did not get to in the, the, the first interview that I did with you, which was wonderful, by the way, and got a lot of response to that. I've got to ask you this, Melissa Francis. I'm a big fan of yours. I, you know, I see you all the time. I think you're just lovely and sweet and sexy and you know, blah, blah, blah. You heard it all before. But what was it like? Help me understand this. How did you feel when you saw another woman give birth to your daughter? Oh, goodness. Wow. All right. Well, you're talking about the fact that so I have a blood condition called Factor V Leiden that is very rare. It's genetic. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. I didn't know I had it when I was pregnant with my first son. Um, I was fine up until the end. And then he had a very traumatic delivery that uh, in in reading it in the audio version of the book, I was just in tears trying to get through that part of it. Um, but it was very traumatic. He's fine now. Thank goodness. Thank God. In fact, when my second son, when I got pregnant with him, they realized that they had misdiagnosed what had happened with the first son. And they found out that I had this genetic condition, factor five Leiden, and that it was incredibly dangerous for me to have kids. And they even offered me the option, you know, maybe I wanted to terminate that second pregnancy. Of course, I did not. My beautiful son, Grayson, is here, and thank goodness, and, and he's perfect. But they said I for sure couldn't have any more children. In fact, they gave me these harsh words that if we wanted to try and have a third, that my husband should practice the conversation he would have with our boys, telling him they weren't enough 
that I died trying to have a third child, which is, it gives me chills even to say that out loud. But my doctor knew that I was someone who fights against all odds, and she had to make it very clear that this was not my battle. So we went along for a while, and, you know, my, my husband really wanted another child, as did I, but he really had this drive. And surrogacy is something, you know, that's almost common in New York City. I mean, it's it's we have there are a lot of parents that are same-sex parents in a lot of different situations why people are trying surrogacy. Um, so we were able to um, find a family that was willing to do this for us. And I write all about that, that feeling in the book because I'm one of the few people on the planet who has that basis of comparison. I have two children that I carried and had myself. I have another child who is genetically 100% mine who someone else gave birth to. And, and people, especially after a couple drinks, venture to ask me, you know, do you love them the same? Um, how does it feel different? And I don't want to spoil the book because I want you to read all the details. But no, the short no, no, answer no, is... no, 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 no. Wait a minute. I don't have many rules with this show, as you could probably tell just by listening. But that's all right, what but I got to answer you the question. Don't, you don't want to do that with any interview. It makes you sound cheesy. It really does. All they're right. they're going to buy the book anyway, right, if not right, for them, but for right. their for their friends. But you, you know, you lose that one, you. Melissa. All right. So, all right. So, do, okay. So, so, do you love your third child any less than the other two? Of course not. Oh my goodness. Of course not. And I didn't feel any differently about her versus my sons the moment she arrived. I mean, if anything, I was so overwhelmed by the miracle. And by the fact that there was a family out there that was willing to do this for us. And I know what a lot of listeners are thinking, that it's about money for the other family. And, you know, I don't blame you for thinking that. I made that mistake, too, originally. But once I met the family, they really just wanted to help someone else. And, and it's as selfless as people that, in my mind, you know, have family in the armed forces, go into the armed forces themselves. This idea that you're just giving of yourself and risking yourself and doing it all to for a greater good because you feel the calling, I guess is probably the best way to say it. Anyway, it was an incredible family um, who gave birth to our daughter. And it really taught me to believe in miracles on this planet. Because just it, I, I guess I'm cynical. You know, I've been through so much in my life and I've seen so much that it's hard for me to believe that somebody would do something so huge out of the goodness of their heart because they feel like, it's the right thing to do, and this family did, and we'll be grateful to them forever. There's a beautiful picture in the middle of the book that's my daughter, Gemma, and surrounding her is everyone who brought her into this world, both families together. And the amazing thing is that Brianna, who was her surrogate mom, her carrier, gave birth to her on her own birthday, and that was – it's just a total fluke, and – so every year on Gemma's birthday, we celebrate Brianna's birthday as well, and it just is. Uh, it was an inc- it was an incredible journey. And I'll never forget when we were in the delivery room and our baby came into this world, and she and her husband thanked. I'm gonna cry. Thanked us for taking them on this journey. Can you imagine? They thanked us. Oh, sorry, <laughs> so emotional. But she's a beautiful girl, and I know that some people feel uncomfortable about the science behind it. And I would encourage you to read our account and just read how everybody felt about it and how special our daughter is. 
yeah. Anyway, <laughs> well, as well, I'm 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 used to it. The last time I interview our first interview, you started crying again. <laughs> I'm sorry, you keep doing this to me. I don't know how you dig down. You're you're quite the interviewer. I've got to get you out on the set. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna bring you on my show, and I'm gonna make you tear up. The oh. truth is, is that this book is from my heart, and oh, I wrote I every that. single word. I I absolutely and, believe that. Let me ask you this, Melissa. I I don't know what it is about you. I've always just liked you. I've never watched Little House on the Prairie. I mean, I'm a guy, so, you know, right there. But uh, I've always just liked you, especially your smile. There's something about your smile. Look, I, I know you're wicked, uh, wicked smart with, you know, Harvard and, you know, and I see you on CNN and uh, not CNN, excuse my God, Fox News and Fox Business. And what, <laughs> you understand finances and, you know, whenever you're on a panel, you offer good insights, but you're not you're not being a snot about it like some of these these men and women are just horrible you're never horrible. You're always very nice. So I've always liked this about you. I've just I've always just liked you. I don't know why. I don't know what the hell's wrong with me, but I've always liked you. Anyway, back to the delivery. This is really interesting to me. As you were seeing, was it a regular birth canal? Thing yes. Or a, okay. yes. As your baby, Gemma, is that her name? Gemma? Yes. Mm-hmm. Gemma. I've got to ask. Gemma? <laughs> it's actually a really common name. There are a whole bunch of Gemmas in my son's school. It, it's English in origin. I mean, it's used mostly in England, but it's actually Italian for gem. And my oh. descent is Italian. There was a Saint Gemma um, when she was baptized. We went through your Saint Gemma, Saint Francis. So she's really, she's got it all. She's wow. she's really, and, and she has these big, beautiful pale blue eyes that are so stunning they look like gems themselves so it is the perfect name for her she she got the eyes from you because i saw your <laughs> pictures as a child i mean your eyes were like oh they were just incredible just absolutely incredible all right so thank you're in, you you're in the delivery room you see a little head pop out you see oh my god there you know there she is she's coming into the world did your body react in any way as you not your head but did your body, any part of your body, react in any sort of way? Hey, you know, it's hard to – there was so much going on. Um, I would say, you know, one of the overriding feelings that I had was sort of I – think, I think I had in a lot of ways – I tell my husband this – I think I had the dad experience because you're watching someone in so much pain, you know, working so hard, and you have no power to help. And you know you're going to benefit. And it's like it's a very humbling feeling. Um, you know, I felt guilty. You know, I wanted to – it was more that I wanted to take away Brianna's pain. You know, she was working so hard. And, um, you know, when I saw the baby, the first thing I thought was, wow, she's a whopper. My other two were four pounds because um, of the way that my body was treating them and because of the genetic condition that I have. And Gemma was like 9.8 pounds. I mean, she was just a giant whopper of a baby. And I thought that's, you know, what she had the same genetics as the boys. And, you know, I thought, well, that's, that's what a, that's what a well-cooked baby looks like as opposed to one that comes out, you know, a little underdone. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I instantly loved her the same way I did my sons and, I don't know, that just really, that's kind of, those were, those were my feelings. Um, but it is really, it was more of a feeling of kind of helplessness. Like there was just nothing I could do to help and I wanted to so much. And when I said that to my husband, he's, you know, was sort of like, that's, that's how dads feel when they're standing there. Hmm. 
So you were kind of having the dad experience. So yeah. what you're saying then is uh, as uh, she was going through this painful, beautiful process, Brianna was starting to curse your husband up and down one side. <laughs> you son of a What did you do to me? Did that happen? And did you record No. Oh, no, no. Oh, would that have been a great tape, though? Would that not have been a great tape? Anyway, I'm, oh, talking, boy. With, I'm talking with Melissa Francis, who is, frankly, a delight. And also a very good uh, author. Not only a good TV presence, but also she knows how to write, and she's got quite a story. It's called the the book, the runaway bestseller, is Lessons from the Prairie. Melissa Francis. It's about, um, in fact, here's the subtitle: The Surprising uh, Secrets to Happiness, Success, and Sometimes Just Survival I Learned on America's Favorite Show from Little House on the Prairie. Um, Michael Landon, you you did an awful lot of uh, describing a lot of the uh, stuff, what it was like on the set of Little House on the Prairie. Michael Landon was this, um, the, the, the guy who's in charge of everything. He owned, I guess he owned the show. He ran everything. He controlled costs. He had an eye for everything and detail and made everybody feel special. Um, you, you wrote about that a lot in Little, uh, excuse me, Lessons from the Prairie. But, you know, as I was reading this, Melissa, I couldn't help but think to myself, you know, everything that you're writing here about Michael Landon, about the way he controlled everything and how it worked so well and, and, and he cared about everybody, the, down to the lowest member of the crew, you know, off camera and this, all this and the other. I couldn't help but think to myself, my God, I think she's also, maybe inadvertently, but she's also describing Roger Ailes and Fox mm. News. And I thought to myself, you know, if I, if I get the chance to talk to Melissa Francis again, well, now this is our second uh, interview here for uh, Lessons from the Prairie, did Michael Landon uh, and Roger Ailes share the same DNA? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I would say that some of the key differences were, I mean, with, with Michael, he was the star. And with Roger, he was really a star maker. You know, he said he recruited me from uh, CNBC. And one of the things that he said about talent was he said, um, you know, I create stars, I create monsters, but they bring in ratings, and then I have to pay them. But then everybody's happy. And it was funny in that I feel like at other networks, they kind of try and keep you in check. You know, they don't want you to blow up big because they think that you become bigger than the business and they don't want to pay you. And at Fox, They've tried so hard, and, and it pays off when people stay. You know, they made Hannity into a huge star and O'Reilly. Um, you know, Megyn Kelly became a huge star, and she left. You know, so I think that that was – that's tough, but it's, it's sort of like he understood how to give somebody enough runway to really – be big. In my own experience, you know, he said to me, you know, you do you. I'm never going to tell you. We're told at NBC and CNBC what you couldn't say and what you couldn't do. And there were so many things. I mean, you know, when I said the math and Obamacare didn't add up, they hauled me into the principal's office over there and told me I was disrespecting the office of the president. And there was always something where they're nipping at you to stop, stop, quiet, sit wait, down. Wait, wait, wait. Don't, don't bury the lead. This is going to be a really interesting story you glossed over. So you... Back when you were at uh, that failing, oh, yeah. that failing network, uh, CNBC, the business NBC's business channel, you said, correct me if I'm wrong, that the math does not work with Obamacare. You said that on the air, and because of that, who did who were you forced to see? To, 
Yeah, well, I tell the whole story in the book as well, and because it was really profound to me, it really showed me how biased most of the media is. And I hadn't really woken up to that fact and because I was always in business news. When you're kind of doing business, you're doing stocks, you're doing that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But this was back in about 2008 when President Obama was out selling Obamacare. And he was saying that, you know, we're going to add all these people to the rolls. We're going to give health care to a bunch of people for free. We're going to not charge for pre-existing conditions. And then somehow, as he said in the New York Times, prices were going to go down for each family by $1,250 per year every year. And I went, wait a second. I have a degree in economics from Harvard, but I think you need to only have first grade math to know that that's, that math doesn't add up unless doctors work for free or insurance companies right, give right, it right. away for free. Now, walk, so, me, walk me, walk, paint the picture for me. Yeah. You walk into the office of, of, of who at CNBC? Well, it, it was the person in charge at the time, and, and I, I, didn't, I don't want to out that particular individual, although he knows who he is, but I was brought into the office, and mm-hmm. I was told to, you know, to, to stop, stop with that. And I said, but why? It's math. It's, you know, I could draw a chart for you if you want. I could create a formula. It's not opinion. And he said, no, but you're disrespecting the office of the president. Did he, went, did, he, did he understand that you had a degree in economics from friggin' yep. Harvard? Didn't care. Didn't care. He said the tone was wrong, that I was disrespecting the office of the president, and we weren't going to do that any longer. And I went and talked to Larry Kudlow at the time. Who's a, he was a, my co-anchor, and he's an outspoken commentator. And he just, you know, kind of grinned r- wryly and went, yep, that sounds right. You know, and, and he was someone, because he was – kind of held out as the lone sort of right-wing voice over there. They didn't rein him in, but they didn't want him to have a chorus around him, I guess. In any case, it was very frustrating. And I thought to myself, I guess all these things that people have been saying, you know, my dad always watched Fox, and he would watch CNBC when I was on, and then he'd switch back to Fox, and he said to me, you know, you guys are all biased over there. And I went, I know I'm not biased. What are you talking about? I've never been told what to say and what not to say. And then all of a sudden I was told what not to say, and I went, oh, wow, really? And over at Fox, you know, back to Roger, he, you know, he said, you do you. I mean, you get out there. You you better do your research and you better believe what you're saying and doing because everybody's going to come after you. But whether you're left, right, or center, we let people do their thing because he was on to this idea, and I write about this a lot in the book too, there was this change. And I really think it came from reality TV, the 24-hour news cycle, and so much social media and Twitter that all of a sudden everyone in the audience, your listeners, are too smart to be conned, to be lied to, to have anyone fake out there. They can smell it, right? They can smell phony from a mile away. And so all of a sudden, journalists used to be these hermetically sealed people living in a bubble where we kept all of our emotions and opinions sealed inside. Well, all of a sudden, the audience decided that they didn't like that anymore, that they could smell that they weren't real. And it's kind of like when you go to a doctor and the doctor says to you, well, on one hand, you can have the surgery and you might live or you might die, and then you cannot have the surgery and you might live or you might die. And you're like, no, no, tell me what you think I should do. I'm not going to do necessarily what you say, but give me an honest opinion. If this were your kid, what would you do? And you know if that doctor doesn't give you that opinion, you're like, oh, so I'm not worth enough to you for you to be really honest with me. They hold you at that arm's distance. You don't appreciate that. Well, journalism is the same thing, I believe, in this day and age. You, the audience, you are too smart. You know that we all have opinions and have emotions. And if we aren't honest enough to share them with you, why in the world would you listen to us? 
I'm honest about the fact that I think government mucks up almost everything they get involved with. That big government just is, it, it's, it's a disaster. I mean, it's inefficient, it causes waste, there's room for fraud, all of those kind of things. We need the government for national security. We need them for a lot of things, but not for most things. And so honest about that. And then when I go and I debate someone or I interview someone, you know where I'm coming from and you, the smart audience, can decide whether you think I'm being fair or not. But these other people who pretend like they don't have an opinion, that's ridiculous because you know they do. Now, what let do me you ask, now let me ask you this. Okay, that was great. But now Fox News, by the way, I'm talking with uh, Melissa Francis, of people you know tuning in and out. Uh, Melissa Francis, one of the stars of Fox News Channel, Fox Business, and uh, author of Lessons from the Prairie. It's about her time as a star on Little House on the Prairie as a child actress. And then, of course, uh, how those lessons that she learned uh, uh, with Michael Landon and everybody else there um, have served her well throughout her incredible, su incredibly successful uh, career, uh, television, and uh, everything uh, else. So, Melissa, in light of what you just said, now that Roger Ailes is gone and Bill Shine is gone, and we have somebody in charge there that I've never heard of, some woman, I guess, is in charge. No, I've, I've read nothing about her, know nothing about her, except that I'm assuming the Murdoch uh, brothers are uh, in favor of her being in charge. Now Fox News has gotten rid of fair and balanced as its slogan, which I thought was, a t which I think is a terrible, terrible mistake, no matter what their direction is going to be going with this thing. And I can see as a viewer, as a viewer, I can see some real changes. One of the things that's really interesting to me is that the technical glitches that I'm seeing, that I've been seeing ever since Roger left, the tape doesn't roll at the right time or they have different wrong things up or it's it's lots and lots of little annoying technical glitches. It used to run really, really smooth, and now it's kind of clunky. Have you noticed that? No, and I would say for the person who's in charge is Suzanne Scott, and she has been mm -hmm. here from the beginning. She is fantastic, mm -hmm. um, and she has always been at the forefront of the business. So she definitely knows what's going on and what to do. I think that what you're seeing is the fact that we are in the process of a massive upgrade. I mean, the Murdochs mm -hmm. and a huge vote of confidence have poured a fortune into building out new studios. They're renovating the entire building. We're all moving newsrooms. Everyone moved to control room. So if you're seeing glitches, yeah. it's because we're in the process of massively upgrading which is not something we had done under Roger. I mean, we had Shepard Smith has that high-tech news deck, but he was sort of the only one who got something new for a very long time. Hmm. So I think part of it is that with the slogan, I, I don't, you know, I don't know what to say about that other than that it's a new day. We have a new studio. We have new everything. So they probably hmm. felt like we needed other new things to go with it. But I'll tell you what. I mean, the good, smart people are still here. We love what we do, we feel a calling to do what we do, and we're not going anywhere else because we know better. I mean, we know that we won't really be allowed to do what we do anywhere else. But, I know that from experience. But I get the sense, as a viewer, as a viewer, yeah. as a fan, that the tone has changed. And, and a good example of that, uh, Chris Wallace, did you see him this Sunday interviewing Jay Sekulow? Mm-hmm. Was that not cringeworthy to you? 
Well, no, I, I, I disagree. I mean, I think that Chris hammers everybody. And My, he, he gets not, complaint, not, Al, no, not Al Gore. When he had Al Gore on a few weeks ago, he it was a love fest there. It was like I a, don't know about that. I don't know if you're we watching the same interview. I mean, he I mean, he said to him, none of the things you predicted came true. How do you feel about that? And then Al Gore had some late answer to that. I don't I think it's in the eye of the beholder, honestly. Well, well yes, of course it is. That's why I brought it up. I mean, yes. I, th- I just found that interesting. Look, we don't have much time, but I've got, I mean, honestly, I could listen to you all day, but I know you're very busy. You've got an incredible schedule and all that. One last question before I hand you my microphone. By the way, I'm talking with Melissa Francis, author of the runaway bestseller Lessons from the Prairie, about her days in as an actress, as a star, a child star, A Little House on the Prairie with Michael Landon, and then about how the lessons that she learned in this incredible TV show, how she is applying them in her daily life as being a, you know, one of the big, big stars with uh, with the uh, Fox News channels. Now, speaking of big big stars, no longer with the Fox News channels. One of your, you know one of your friends who wrote something very nice about uh, the book here, uh, Megyn Kelly. Uh, it sounds as if she has lost her GPS, her north star, her compass. <laughs> what I mean, I know they threw a, t- a ton of money at her. You know, fifteen twenty million dollars. She's set now for the rest of you know the next ten lives. But it's looking like. That she's 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 like off her feed. She's gone off the rails. I mean, what the hell is she thinking about with with the you know that whole Putin interview that didn't really work out all that well, and now with the Alex Jones thing? What do you make of this, Melissa? Well, first of all, I would say that she hammered Alex Jones pretty hard last night, um, and I think that she is a brilliant person and a brilliant journalist. She's a very good friend, um, and she also. My book was her idea. We were out to dinner, and she said, you know, you have so many bits of wisdom that you always have around you and that you talk to other people about. You should put them in one book because they're really good stuff. So she's the one who encouraged me to write this in the first place. I would say this. So she was – she has taken huge risks in her life. She was an attorney, um, and she took a huge risk when she was making partner to go work in local news. I mean, at at a – Obviously, a huge pay cut, but beyond that, I mean, it was just a tremendous risk in her life, and it obviously paid off. She's someone who believes that you bet big to win big, and I think that what she wanted to do was really do a different kind of show. I think her weekday daytime show is going to be very different from what you normally see her do, and she wanted a place that would let her take that huge risk, and that was NBC. But would you have advised her to touch Alex Jones. Yes, because I think that it came from her heart. She has worked for a long time with those poor families in Connecticut who had that horrible tragedy befall them. And she did it to challenge him because he has gained so much more. um, He's he's much higher in people's psyches. He has so much more visibility than he did before that she wanted to really challenge him and call him on the carpet. And I know that she was surprised by the reaction from the families before they saw the interview and saw that she hammered him and she felt like she was doing the right thing. And as a journalist, I mean, the, the worst of people get interviewed. That's part of learning what makes them tick um, you know, ha- however you feel about someone like that. I mean, you know, whether you, inter- I mean, Charles Manson got interviewed many times. He said, we don't, we don't interview people we disagree with or we think have caused harm. It was the White Album. That's what did it, the White Album. 
sorry. My Charles Manson's going on here. Anyway, look, Melissa, I'm uh, just about uh, out of time. Again, if you could stay talking, I mean, I'd keep this thing rolling well, for the next we'll two hours. you know, we'll have to do it again. Oh, we'll absolutely. Have to do it again, but you're not allowed to let make me cry next time. Oh, you're yeah, blame me. Blame me. I do blame you. Oh, no, I just, I just, listen, I, I read your book and I asked you some questions that I found interesting and I wanted to hear the answer. So apparently we're touching the same things. I mean, as crazy as it sounds. You're it too was penetrating. Like, well, I don't know about that. But anyway, uh, Melissa Francis is the author of Lessons from the Prairie Runaway Bestseller. Make sure you buy extra copies to give to friends gifts wonderful idea i always give my guests the last word so uh, melissa i'm going to hand you my shore sm70 dynamic microphone and this is your opportunity to speak directly to my listeners here at one dimitri radio you can uh, repeat uh, key points that you brought up during the interview you can bring up new points and also you have my blank check absolute permission to promote shamelessly not only lessons from the prairie but also social media your speaking engagements your tv shows and all the other wonderful things you do so melissa francis my dear melissa francis my microphone is yours well thank you so much and i love being on the show you are so thoughtful and you're such a great host that this book is meant especially for the people who tune in and listen to you because i know that they are thoughtful too and radio listeners are my best audience because you guys, I mean, you are the ones that listen with your ears. You're not visual. You're not watching. You're listening with your mind. And so you are the perfect ones to read Lessons from the Prairie. It is my surprising secrets to happiness, success, and sometimes just survival that I learned on America's Favorite Show, behind the scenes on Little House in the Prairie, behind the scenes here at Fox. It is so personal to me. I reveal so many things in there. That's why I've cried twice on this program. I can't believe it. How embarrassing, but it just means that much to me. I wrote every word of this from my heart for you, for my children. I hope you'll pick it up and read it. There are some really tremendous, I think, 